The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. If you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, then you know that we're currently in the middle of a series of sermons where we are covering the big picture of the Bible. The goal of this series is to highlight seven or so of the main themes of Scripture so that we can better know who our God is, and in light of that, to understand His Word and even to understand more about who we are. And as we've done each time, these sermons begin in Genesis and they end in Revelation. That will be true today as well. However, it's not going to be as linear as the previous two sermons have been. You will find that there will be everything from Genesis to Revelation, but you'll see that I'm popping around quite a bit today for reasons that will become clear in a moment. This Sunday, we're going to be considering two parallel themes that run through the entirety of the Bible, which are divine sovereignty and human responsibility. One of my favorite preachers to listen to is named Steve Lawson. And uh, one story that I've heard him tell multiple times is about when he was in seminary and he was in a preaching course at his seminary and his professor, who seems to be a very good professor, would do something that was very interesting uh, during their courses. A student would go up, as every good preaching class uh, should have, and they would preach a sermon to the class and then would be publicly critiqued by the professor. And this particular professor had made a big sign with just two words on it that occasionally he would hold up right in the middle, right in their face, from the front row of the class, right to the student, and the two words on this sign were, so what? And it's important, as these students were doing their best to present a homiletical masterpiece, to remember it's not just about teaching information to the mind. The goal of preaching is to give God's word to your heart. And so today, I just want to right, after the, right at the beginning tell you, so what? What is the point of what I'm about to tell you about des- divine sovereignty and human responsibility? Sometimes it can be difficult to apply a sermon because the context or the text itself is so specific that there are very few direct applications that can be made. That is not the problem here. The opposite is the issue here. The, the things we are considering this morning are so fundamental and so broad that they literally affect everything that you will do for the rest of your life. It affects the fundamental perspective of your outlook at the entire world and your entire life. So what is the point? The point is this matters for how you view God and how you view yourself. It is important to see ourselves rightly, and more important even, to see God for who he is. So for your sake, I'm going to boil everything down to just one major reason why I'm going to say that this should be of utmost importance to you. One of the most dangerous and sinful aspects of the human heart is our natural propensity to have an irrationally high view of self or of man and to have a shamefully low view of God. 
Reading the Bible rightly should humble us because it should show us that God is gloriously sovereign. And reflexively, it shows us that we are not sovereign in light of this sovereign creator. Perhaps I will say things today that are truths that you hold really dear. You love them. You know them. You delight in them. And as I say these things, it will bubble up as encouragement in your heart. But perhaps you're going to be surprised and maybe even offended by the assertions I'm about to make. And if that is the case, then I want to encourage you to search the scripture. Do not take my word for it because I'm just a fallible person. I'm just a man. But the word of God is perfect. It is flawless. So every claim that I make, I'm going to do my best to undergird it with scripture. I am not making these assertions because I want to, or it is my own personal philosophy, rather because I think this is what God clearly teaches throughout the consistency of the Bible. So for the sake of simplicity and for clarity, our outline this morning is simply going to be three simple theological assertions or affirmations rather. Affirmation number one, God is totally sovereign over all things. Affirmation two, man is completely responsible for his actions. And affirmation three, scripture presents God's sovereignty and man's responsibility as constant parallel realities. Or if you want a really simplified outline that is really easy to take in your notes, affirmation one, God is sovereign. Affirmation two, man is responsible. Affirmation three, we'll see biblical examples that show these things are both true. Or you could just write biblical examples. Our first affirmation is that God is totally sovereign over all things. Let's begin here by defining our terms, okay? There's a lot of things that use the term sovereign that are not necessarily sovereign. Sovereign bank, for example. What do I mean by sovereignty? I mean that God is the king of the universe and that every single molecule is under his complete and absolute control. Sovereignty means that nothing ever happens that is not controlled or decreed or foreordained or predestined or willed by God. It is to say that God has determined the means, not just the ends. And this is a huge claim to make. This is a massive statement that I am making to you. How do you know that this is true? Let me show you from Scripture. Let's begin with our Old Testament reading that Ben read for us so well earlier. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10. God says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And then he defines what it looks like to be God declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God is defining his deity and his uniqueness by explaining that he and he alone declares whatever comes to pass. And God does not ever exaggerate his authority. So when he says that he will accomplish something, it is a guarantee. And the thing that he has guaranteed to occur here in this passage is what? It is his own purpose that it will stand. But can God's plans be stopped or be diverted or to be miscalculated or messed up by man's sinfulness? Job chapter 42 verse 2 answers that question for us. He says, I know that you can do all things 
and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. A right view of God is that he is in absolute and constant control over his entire creation. So let's break it down categorically. For the sake of time limitations, I will limit my examples to very few, but there are many, many, many more proof texts in each one of these categories. But what we'll do here is we'll start with the comparatively small and insignificant, and we'll grow to the larger and more significant aspects of God's sovereignty. Let's begin with one that I love. It sounds almost funny to say it as the first one, but I love it, that God is sovereign over animals. 1 Kings chapter 17, we see God send ravens to feed Elijah. Have you ever seen ravens? They are crazy. Birds in general, they are disgusting and they fight over every little scrap of food. But what did these things do? They carried food. They didn't consume it. Instead, they would take it to feed Elijah. We see in 1 Samuel chapter 6, there are two cows. I used to live across the street from a pasture full of cows when I grew up. They are lazy and they are stupid animals who do not do anything without being guided. Yet there are two cows where the enemies of God's people put the Ark of the Covenant onto a cart, hitched it to two cows and said, if this thing really belongs to God, it will go back to the Israelites. And what happened? Those two cows, miraculously, by the hand of God, were led back to the Israelites. We can see this all over the place. God sent a fish to swallow Jonah. Where did that come from? Was that an accident? By no means. God is sovereign over animals. And perhaps the greatest example of God's sovereignty over the animals is the fact that God sovereignly led two of every unclean animal and seven of every clean animal to Noah for them to be saved on the ark. I can't even get my dog to stop barking. And God commands the animals to do whatever he wants them to do. He is completely sovereign. God is also sovereign over the weather. One of the things that even in the modern world is terrifies many people is weather, winter storms. There are hurricanes and tornadoes and tsunamis and you name it. There are all sorts of crazy weather patterns that we still encounter as deadly. Can you imagine living without our modern kinds of world where we have electricity and where we have safe walls that we don't have to fear will fall down? Psalm chapter 135 verses 6 through 7 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Where does this weather come from? It comes from the direct hand of God. We also see the example of the great flood of Noah. Genesis chapter 8 verse 22 also tells us that God rules over the seasons. One of the plagues of Egypt was a massive hailstorm. And when Elijah prayed, what does God do? He sends down fire from heaven. And of course, what did God do with Sodom and Gomorrah? He utterly destroyed them by sending a storm of of fire and brimstone from the sky so that there was nothing left that remained but ashes. And I could go on and on and on. God is sovereignly in charge of the weather. God is also sovereign over the rise and fall of world powers. In the book of Daniel, we see probably the most clear examples of this over and over and over. I think sovereignty is the key theme of that book, and dominion is a word that I love. It's used regularly in that book. Consider Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 through 21. 
Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. Who does that? Why are we experiencing winter right now? Because God does that. He removes kings and sets up kings. Why do we have the government that we have right now? Because God does that. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Later in the book of Daniel, when Nebuchadnezzar finally understands that God is truly in charge, he declares in Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. He's contrasting that with himself, temporary, limited. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God is sovereignly in charge of all world powers and authority. And this man who at the time was the powerhouse of the world, the greatest king in the entire planet, this man says, I'm not the one actually in charge. God is the one who sets up these kingdoms and removes them. But wait, there's more. God is completely in control of all things that we would call chance or luck. There is no such thing as luck. In, in fact, it says in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Einstein famously said that God doesn't play dice, but the Bible teaches that whenever people play dice, God sovereignly controls the outcome. God is also sovereign over life and over death. We see this played out in many examples, both in God executing judgment by way of death, but also by God raising up people who were dead and bringing them back to life. But perhaps the clearest verbal presentation of this in the Bible is found in Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6. What does she say? The Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, which means the grave, and he raises up. God is sovereignly in charge, even over life and death. It's also important to understand that Satan is not somehow God's equal opposite. This is not like the dualism of Buddhism. The devil is not the yin to God's yang. Rather, Satan is only allowed to do damage insofar as God allows him to do so. He is on a divine leash, as it were. Consider the story of Job. Satan is not permitted to tempt, to test, or to touch Job without the express, express consent of who? The sovereign king of the universe. We'll just look at a single verse, but I recommend reading all of Job chapter 1 when you have time as an example. But for now, Job 1.12 will suffice. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, All that he has, all that Job has, is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. There's a song that we sing here at the church. Uh, It's called Sovereign Over Us. And the original wording says that even what the enemy means for evil, you turn it for our good. But we've changed those lyrics. We do not sing them as they were originally written because that is completely inaccurate. God is not reactionary. 
We've changed it so that it says, even what the enemy means for evil, you mean it or meant it for our good. It was always God's intention for these things to work out for our good and for his glory. God does not react to anything. He is incapable of being surprised by anything. He cannot risk anything because risk implies ignorance. Or to state it simply, God never says, oops. He never says, wow. He never says, huh? Or what? Or hmm. God doesn't say these things because he is never shocked. He is never stunned. He is never concerned. He is never uncertain because God is sovereign. So I assume you're with me right now, and I hope that this is helping rightfully expand your view of how awesome God is. But here come the parts that are usually a little bit more difficult for people to swallow, because this is where things go from the abstract realities of our world, and they hit home because they're talking about you specifically. God is completely sovereign over the lives and the actions of all people. Over the next couple of minutes, I want to show you three specific ways that the Bible shows this to be true. First, we see a particular term used 140 times in the Bible. It's the word favor. What does favor mean? I think you know that you see that somebody looks on you without disdain, but with kindness and with a desire to serve you or show kindness or grace to you. And there are multitudes of examples of this where God gives an individual favor with their enemies. For example, Joseph. We're going to talk a little bit about him later on today, so I'll just give a brief example of him. This is in his life when he has been falsely accused and he has been sent into jail. And then we read these words in Genesis chapter 39, verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love, and he, God, gave him, Joseph, favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Do you see what this means? It means that God caused that jailer to look at Joseph favorably. God divinely directed the heart of that man to see Joseph as a friend and not as an enemy. This can happen, why? Because God sovereignly has control over the thoughts and even the emotions of man. Secondly, God sovereignly is often displayed in the way that he, God's sovereignty is often displayed in the way that he raises up kings or kingdoms for the purpose of punishing the people of Israel. We talked about this already a little bit, but I want you to understand this is not an abstract reality. This means that God had to incite something or work in the life or heart of an individual in order for them to do what God has promised they will do. Last year, I preached through the book of Habakkuk. I think honestly, Those four sermons that I did in Habakkuk are my favorite four sermons I've probably ever preached. I was fascinated by this little book of Habakkuk. And the whole point of that book is that God promises Habakkuk that he is going to send the Babylonians, or the other word for them, the Chaldeans, to come in and to completely decimate the the city of Jerusalem and to take everybody that's there and, and take them off to Babylon. That's the promise. It's bad news that, that Habakkuk is giving them. But what I want you to see is that God is sovereignly controlling these events. Time doesn't permit us to read the whole first chapter, although I wish that we could. Let's just consider Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. God says, Look among the nations and see. 
Wander and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I, who is doing this? I am raising up the Chaldeans. And now God does not say they're they're a nice group of people. He recognizes their sinfulness. He says, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. And if you continue reading, he just displays over and over and over, these people are sick and twisted and evil. Yet God says, I am going to elevate them. I'm going to lift them up. I'm going to raise them up. I'm going to give them everything that they need to come here and to attack you. God is sovereignly in charge. And who is it that God sent? We've already mentioned him earlier in the sermon. Nebuchadnezzar. Now here's the part where you guys can interact with me. Was Nebuchadnezzar a good guy or a bad guy in the scope of biblical history? Was he a good guy? Bad guy. Bad guy. You should know this, yes. Nebuchadnezzar, bad guy. Evil, horrible, awful man. This man was absolutely wicked to the core. He went in, he... He caused great harm to the people of God. He Not only did he kill many of them, he imprisoned many of them. He took many of them into slavery. He forced them to change their names from God-honoring names to ones that were sinful and wicked and worshiping false gods. And then he took all these things from the temple that were meant for holy use, and he defiled them by using them in worship of false gods. Nebuchadnezzar was not a good guy, but God raised him up. God gave him his position. God gave him his authority. And as we already looked at in chapter 4 of Daniel, there was a time period where Nebuchadnezzar was very proud. God temporarily, for seven years, took that authority away from him and then gave it back. God is sovereignly in control of even the heart of an individual. Nebuchadnezzar was a bad guy, yet he was serving as an unwitting tool in the hand of the grand designer of the universe. As it says in Proverbs 21, verse 1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Why do we pray for our president? Why do we pray for our governor? Why do we pray for our leaders? There's many reasons, but one of them is because we know we could write letters, we could call, we could do whatever we want. We can't change a person's mind. You and I, we ultimately have very limited ability to persuade. But God can change the heart of anyone. Thirdly, God is sovereign over salvation. Now, this is the part that is usually most challenging for people to understand or to believe. I know for me, this was a difficult pill to swallow when I began to see this in the scripture. But I want you to see that Jonah 2.9 declares salvation belongs to the Lord. He owns it. He controls it. He can do with it what he will. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We don't have enough time to flesh this out fully, but I promise we will in the near future. So please keep coming on Sundays. But for today, we're simply going to see from the mouth of our Savior himself, Jesus Christ, John 6:44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Those who will be raised up on the last day are synonymous or equal to those that the Father himself draws. And Jesus promises a few verses earlier in John 6:37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Now, if you're struggling with this idea, first allow me to say I totally understand. I remember this being so difficult for me to grasp and hard for me to believe. But I want to tell you, part of the reason it was hard for me to accept this is because of my own personal pride, where I wanted to believe on some level 
that I was responsible for coming to Christ. But ultimately, there's no reason I could boast because it is all of grace, all of God, all because of his gospel. So I want to encourage you, if you're struggling with this, this is a biblical truth. It is the clear teaching of scripture. And if you don't see where that's there, talk to me. I want to help you see what the Bible says about these issues. So if you're battling with God's sovereign working, let me ask you a question. Do you pray for the lost? Do you pray for unsaved people to come to know Christ? If so, if you don't believe this teaching, what are you doing? You are asking God to sovereignly invade their will and to ask God to force them on some level to repent and to believe. Should you do that? Of course you should. Yes, you should. We should and we must because God is sovereign over salvation. So I hope that this hear, hearing this causes you to open your eyes wider as you behold even more clearly the glory and power and sovereign authority of our Lord. And if you know Psalm 15:3, feel free to say it out loud with me. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. He is sovereign. Which brings us now to our second affirmation for the morning, which is this. Even though God is totally sovereign, man is fully responsible for his actions. This is going to be our shortest point for the morning, but please do not mistake brevity for insignificance. Often, when people hear that God is completely sovereign, they assume that this means that man is therefore nothing more than a robot or an automaton. They jump to the notion that if God is control of all, in control of all things, this means that they do not have the ability to make choices or to have any kind of agency at all. It's kind of like this fatalistic determinism that the philosophers speak about. And many people reject the notion of a sovereign God because they think it necessitates that man is some kind of automaton. But please understand, the Bible never presents you or I in this way. I want to show you right now three ways that the Bible shows that you are responsible before God. First, God commands and he expects those commands to be followed. God makes laws, he makes rules, and he has never been ambivalent about what those are, or ambiguous about what those are. He has told us up front what his expectations are for us, and he expects that we will follow them. In the Garden of Eden, for example, God commanded one thing. Avoid the fruit of the single tree in the center of the garden. Yet... Because Adam and Eve were made as volitional beings in the image of God, they were able to choose sin. God did not force them, he did not coerce them, and he did not manipulate them into sinning. James chapter 1 verse 13 tells us, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Who is responsible for their act in the garden? Adam and Eve or God? It was Adam and Eve. They are at fault. Thus, we see they are cursed. Which brings us now to the second way that we see God does, in fact, show us to be responsible. That God will judge or punish those who fail to keep his commands. As we just saw, what happened to Adam and Eve? They were cast out of the garden. They were sent away from his presence. They were no longer allowed to enter in. Why? Because they were responsible for their sinful act against God. God says in Isaiah 13, 11, I will punish the world for its evil 
and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Why? Because he punishes the guilty. They are actually responsible for their decisions. And so are you. Every time that you have ever chosen to sin, you have done so as an intentional choice to oppose God and instead to indulge your own sinful desires. Thirdly, you have a will that is free to do whatever it wants to do. In fact, I would argue that you've never done anything except what you want to do. And now you're probably thinking, wait a minute, pause. I do things that I don't want to do all the time. Yes and no. You might think, I really don't want to go to work tomorrow. But you want your job, you want a paycheck, so you go to work. So the desire to have money coming into your bank account outweighs your desire to be lazy. Do you see what I'm saying? You still do what you do because you want to do it. I would argue that your desire to keep your job and paycheck are outweighing your desire to be lazy because you always act upon what is most significant at that point in your heart in terms of your own desires. That means that your actions are still propelled by your greatest desire, and you can apply that to any choice that you have ever made your entire life. Why do you do what you do? You do those things because you want to. You are people, and so am I, that act based upon our will. But the Bible tells us that left to our own desires, you will never choose God because your will is bound by the limitations of its nature. And unless the Lord gives you a new heart and makes you a new creation, your desires will always be in alignment with the sinful nature that you inherited from your grandfather, Adam. Romans chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 describes the natural heart this way. It says, No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You don't seek for God. Your, your heart doesn't want to, it can't, because you are restricted. The Bible talks about us, we who are sinners, as slaves to sin. You must see that being in Christ is freedom, because now we are free to choose him, because he has set us free from the bounds of sin. And for all of these things, the Bible teaches that we are responsible before God. We are responsible, that is why God can respond to us in these ways. Which leads us now to our third affirmation of the morning, which is that Scripture presents God's sovereignty and man's responsibility as constant parallel realities. With a little bit of time left, I want to show you three biblical examples of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, how they work hand in hand. Consider these to be three portraits in a long hallway of biblical pictures of this magnificent truth. These are not the only times you can find this in the Bible. Portrait number one. Joseph, going back to the life of this incredible man. If you want to know a lot about him, please stay with us through the summer because we're going to finish out our study through the book of Genesis by considering the life of Joseph, Genesis 37 through 50. Right now, we're just going to move through his life very quickly. We've already touched on his life briefly today, but let's remember what happened to him. His brothers hated him because their father loved Joseph the most. So what did they do? They want to kill him. But instead, they decide, let's show mercy to him. And what is the merciful option? Let's just sell our brother into slavery. That's the nice option. So he was taken from a comfortable life of freedom and forced into a life of indentured servitude. 
He was sold at an auction like he was nothing more than a rug or a hammer or a cart. He was targeted by his owner's wife, and she pursued him sexually. And when he rightly ran away from her, she falsely accused him of attempted rape. So he was sent to prison. And then Joseph spent a total of 13 years between the house of Potiphar and prison. That's bad stuff. That's a horrible situation in his life. And then, as we saw earlier, Joseph was given favor in the eyes of the jailer, and then favor with these two special prisoners, and then favor with Pharaoh himself. And because the Lord was working in his life, he was elevated to become the second most powerful man in all of Egypt, which equated to being the second most powerful man in the entire world at the time. And the Lord, who was sovereign over the weather, sent a major famine that caused Joseph's brothers to come down to Egypt searching for food. And without going through the entire story, I'll simply jump ahead to the fact that eventually the whole household came to Egypt to be with Joseph. But when Joseph's dad died, then the brothers start panicking. What if Joseph wants revenge? Now that dad's out of the picture, maybe he'll actually try to kill us. And so they concoct this false narrative by putting words in their dead father's mouth. And it's at this point we pick up the reading in Genesis chapter 50, verse 16 through 20. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. He knew they were lying. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. So get the picture. Joseph now has the opportunity for the first time to berate them if he wants to. Their father is dead. He could come at them with all right force. He's got power like none of them have ever imagined as the second most powerful man in the kingdom. He could, he could just make life really difficult for them. He could have them killed. All sorts of things could happen here. And they don't know what's coming. But instead of those things, he responded by saying, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? I'm not sovereign. He is sovereign. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What his enemies meant for evil... God meant for good. Their actions were sinful. You can't look at what was happening and pretend that they're not sinful. And Joseph does not try to whitewash those things. He acknowledges the fact that their intentions were evil, and he doesn't try to brush their sin under the rug. Rather, Joseph rightly saw God's hand at work, even in the darkest and loneliest of his trials. And it was God at work to bring his family to Egypt, even though he didn't know that at the time. And it was God that brought the famine, which facilitated their move. And it was God that would later free them from being in bondage for hundreds of years in this horrible place. God was working sovereignly, even in the midst of all sorts of sinful actions of man. God is sovereign and man is responsible. I think most of us are quick to hold on to the promise of Romans chapter 8, 28. We love that passage. It says, we know that... For those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. But we must not fail to see that God cannot work all things together for good unless God is working in all things, all things, including the things that we don't like or don't enjoy, or we personally would look at and say, those are bad. Which leads us now to our second portrait of these two truths operating together. 
the portrait of Pharaoh. Not the Pharaoh in the story of Joseph, but the Pharaoh that was in power hundreds of years later, roughly 400 years after Joseph said those words to his brother. The Israelites were at the precipice of being freed from the generations of slave labor under the oppressive thumb of the evil Pharaoh. And it is this Pharaoh that I'd like to consider for a few moments. God raised up Moses to deliver the Israelites from their slavery. And when God sent Moses back to Egypt to free them, he told Moses before he ever gets back to Egypt, he says in Exodus chapter 4, verse 21, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. There's a lot of miraculous things that Moses is about to do. But God says, I'm not going to allow him to listen to those things. Look at the rest of the verse. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. God promised that he would harden the heart of Pharaoh. God explicitly told Moses that there would be a struggle to get these people out of Egypt. And why is this struggle taking place? Why won't it be easy? Why can't you just go in and have favor with Pharaoh and just walk out? Because God said he would work in the heart of Pharaoh in such a way that he would not allow the people to leave. God repeats this promise in Exodus 7, verse 3. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. In other words, he continues on and says, I won't let them go. But notice how the text presents the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in Exodus chapter 8, verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw there was a respite, in other words, God was relaxing the punishment, he, Pharaoh, hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. In other words, God promised when he said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, it's the same thing as saying Pharaoh would harden his heart. So who hardened Pharaoh's heart? According to this verse, it was Pharaoh. And according to what we've seen earlier, it was God. So who was it that hardened Pharaoh's heart? It was God and it was Pharaoh. Look at how we see this back and forth. Exodus chapter eight, verse 32. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also. Exodus 9 verse 12, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Exodus 9 34, but when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. Exodus 10 1, then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh for I have hardened his heart. Exodus 10 20, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go. Exodus 10 27, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and would not let them go. And I could go on. There are actually four more occasions directly in in succession that say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So the question is, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Was it God or was it Pharaoh? And of course, the answer is yes. So let me explain what it means to have your heart hardened by God. It means that God allows you to do what your sinful heart already desires to do it means that he removes ever so slightly his hand of restraining grace paul uses the same truth to explain the mystery of god's sovereignty over salvation in romans chapter 9 earlier we sang that song he will save whom he will save that idea for that song is drawn directly from these verses romans 9 14 through 18 what shall we say then is there injustice on god's part by no means For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. 
So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Pay close attention. Verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Don't miss that. The opposite of hardening someone's heart, according to verse 18, is mercy. The hardening of the heart is a form of judgment. It is allowing man to continue to pursue sin at their own expense. But the restraining hand of God in our lives is a form of his great kindness and mercy. If it were not for the grace of God, every single one of us would be worse than Hitler. God allows us to continue on in control. This is just another angle of how God's divine sovereignty operates in unison with human will. But let's land now with our third and final and what I believe to be absolutely the most important biblical example of God's sovereignty and human responsibility coming into a place of being intertwined. This example comes from the darkest and most wicked sin that has ever been committed. On the day of Pentecost, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was preaching a sermon to everyone who was crowding this marketplace. And in the middle of that sermon, he cried out these words from Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The crucifixion of Jesus, the killing of God's own son, the murder of the only innocent person who has ever lived is by far the most disturbing and wicked sin that has ever been committed. And these things were carried out how? By the hands of lawless men. And Peter is pointing to the crowd there and says, you crucified him. Who did this? You did this. This is on you. Peter does plainly here puts the blood guilt on the hands of those who sent Jesus to the cross, right? But he also rightly acknowledges that all of these horrible things that happened to Jesus took place because they were part of God's definite, unchanging, perfect plan and foreknowledge. Judas's betrayal was part of God's plan. The Pharisees lies. They were sins. They were part of God's plan. The cowardice of Pilate, who was supposed to be the just judge, that was part of God's plan. The brutality of the guards was part of God's plan. That one soldier who took a handful of Jesus' beard and he ripped it out of his face, that was part of the plan. The crown of thorns, the punches, the gambling over his clothes, the nails in his hands, the struggle to breathe, the vinegar that burned his lips, the blood loss, the mockery, the insults that were hurled at him, all of this was part of God's plan. But it's not enough to simply know that it was part of God's plan. We must know why it was part of his plan. What was God accomplishing? Peter's very next words were, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. 
He descended and condescended to walk among us. Jesus lived a life here among man, and he lived a perfect life. And this Jesus went to the cross for this reason. The same Peter who preached this sermon later writes in his epistle, which we call 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. This same man wrote, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And by his wounds you have been healed. That's the plan. God's sovereignty is shown because he loves his people, so he sovereignly sends his son to die for them. And this Jesus now rules and reigns as king of the universe. So allow me to close with one application for believers and one application for those who are still unconverted. First, for those who are saved, I call on you to view yourself rightly before the Lord. See him as he presents himself in the Bible. See him as perfectly in control. This should give you comfort because God is in charge. What can man do to you? He is in control. It could, should give you peace knowing that your life is in his hand. Nothing can shake him, therefore nothing should shake you. It should also fill you with awe as your eyes are opened wider to see his power and authority. I think the biggest sin that we commit is that we make God small in our eyes. Church, see God as big, like he is. Have a grander perspective of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who came to save. Now, for those who are not yet born again, I want to say to you that there is no hope for you outside of Jesus Christ. Please understand, God is sovereign, but you are responsible before him. And I am making a call to you right now. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and there is a promise that you will be saved. Put your trust in him. Believe that at the cross, he paid your debt. Recognize that before God, you have nothing to offer. You have no bargaining chip with the sovereign Lord of the universe. There's nothing that you can give him that would allow you entrance into his kingdom or into heaven. But there is one who paid the way so that you might enter in, and that is Jesus Christ. If you believe in him, believe that his death, burial, and resurrection were of value for you to be saved, then you will be saved. If you simply believe that Jesus died in your place, that he bought your liberty, then you will have access to God himself. There's a lot more that we can say about these things. I hope that you are encouraged. I hope that you are blessed. If you have any questions, I love talking about this topic. So please come talk with me. I would be delighted to share more with you. But at this time, let's close our sermon this morning in prayer. Father in heaven, it is you who made us and not we ourselves. Lord, it is you who rules and reigns over the universe. As I promised, Lord, we will begin these sermons in Genesis. We will end in Revelation. Lord, your word says in Revelation twenty-two thirteen, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. Lord, you are all in all. You are in charge. You are our authority. You are our king. Father, I pray for every one of us who has recognized you as our king, who has recognized your authority. You would help us to live in accordance with the reality that you are God and we are not. And Lord, I pray for everyone here who has not yet bowed the knee to Jesus, that you would, by your sovereign grace, break through to them and reveal yourself to them. Show them your love. Show them your grace. Show them the gospel. Enlighten them, we pray. And Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church to be a people 
who lives in light of the sovereignty of God in all, all things every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.